0: Well, if you guys remember, about 35 years before King Ahab, we have this king named Jeroboam. He's the first king of Israel once we have the divided kingdom. And Jeroboam just basically makes up his own religion, right? He doesn't want people going back down to to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. He wants to keep everybody up north. And so he creates some golden calves again. Um, hearkening back to the old days, right? And says, sets them up and says, you guys should worship. This is the God that delivered you guys out of Egypt. And you can sacrifice at uh, Dan or uh, what's the other place? Bethel? Was it Bethel in the south and Dan in the north? And so he just makes up his own religion. It was a Festivus for the rest of us. If you guys have any idea what that means. he just made up a brand new religion. Just to kind of keep everybody in control so 35 years later if you track the different kings in in the north you have a certain king and this one's bad this one's bad this one's bad 35 years you come to ahab and he is not just bad he's the worst why is he the worst is he's really he and jezebel together have brought israel full-on into baal worship Um, idolatry this is like old canaanite religion so let's ask the question, just kind of setting things up, you know, why in the world would Israel, we're not talking about some, you know, non-Jewish country, we're not talking about a bunch of Canaanite leftovers or pagans that are surrounding Israel, we're talking about right here in Israel, people are now worshiping Baal. That would be like, you know, in the Bible Belt, all of a sudden everybody turns over to Buddhism or to Islam. I don't know, maybe that'll happen here soon, we'll see. Um, so what's the big appeal about Baal worship? Well, first of all, Baal worship has the uh, support of the royalty, right? Especially Jezebel, she's fanatical about it. She's, we're going to find out later. She's got 450 of her own prophets. She's got these other people running around. So she's a big time pro-Baal queen. Ahab goes; seems like he's into it too, not quite as much as as Jezebel, Um, but it tends to be that people will frequently follow the God of the leaders of that country, right? Because uh, whatever the the religion that's in at the moment, that's going to help you business wise. It's kind of like, why do presidents always go to church in the United States? It's because if you want to be president of the United States, you better go to church. At least pretend like you have some affinity for Christianity. Um, Otherwise, people really don't want to, they're going to be shy to vote for you. Um, and just about any country around the world, whatever the main religion is, people are going to gravitate towards what's in at the time. So as as a Jew, if you want to kind of be in with the establishment, you wanted to follow Baal. Uh, secondly, you know, let's th- think about this here. <clears throat> Baal worship is not a Johnny-come-lately religion. This is old-time religion. Baal worship at least in Canaan, predates Judaism, right? We're not saying that it's, it's better than Judaism or obviously the true God had been around since the beginning of time. But when you're talking about Canaan, Baal worship was there first. And so it had the appeal in Israel of kind of like that old-time tradition, <clears throat> kind of like what's going on right now in Mexico. It's been going on for quite a while There's this movement to want to go back to the Aztec religions. Let's reject our Roman Catholicism. We need to get back to the old-time religion when we were really worshiping our gods, our native gods. Um, And this goes on on in the United States where people are wanting to, you know, you'll find different people groups, like, say, Native Americans going back to their old-time religion, rejecting Christianity, so on and so forth. I remember a movie years ago. Um, i trying to remember the name of it. it was Tommy Lee Jones or some kidnapped kids. And so the, 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 the mom of the kidnapped kids is a Christian lady, and she's worried and trying to run out and find her kids. But Tommy Lee Jones is this guy that's traveled around, and he's really into the Native American or Indian religion. And throughout the movie, it contrasts Christianity and the Indian religion. And, of course, being a Hollywood film, which religion do you think seems more profound? Well, it's the Native American faith. And so <clears throat> the mom gets sick, and and so Tommy Lee Jones and the Indians, they're doing their incantations, and he's given her an amulet, and there's smoke, and all this sense of history and tradition. And then the little girl's over there reading out of the begats of Genesis. Adam begat this person. that, And, it, and the contrast is, look how feeble the Bible is just reading about begats when you got Tommy Lee Jean Jones over here making smoke and pronouncing words that we don't understand, and there's this real mystical mystical music in the background, and of course it's through the uh, Native American prayer that she gets healed, not the feeble reading of the Bible. So you have this battle of the religions, and so in um, Baal worship, <clears throat> you have the you know the royalty is supporting it. It's got this old time uh, kind of traditional feel by the way that's uh one of the reasons why we're seeing this movement back to eastern orthodoxy and even roman catholicism in our culture you guys realize that that there's this movement of if you track kind of baptist faith right now um a lot of the conversions to eastern orthodoxy in the u.s are coming from people that have come out of baptist churches why is that well when they're interviewed a lot of times they say well it just seems like Eastern Orthodoxy has this sense of tradition, the sense of connectedness to the past. And that's that's what they're describing. Same thing with Baal worship. It's like the good good Jewish people be like, our religion is fairly, it doesn't seem as profound as the Baal worship that goes way back and connects us to the land and our past, the fertility God that's going to bring us. And that brings us to our third reason why Baal worship could be appealing is Baal worship, who is Baal? Uh, He's the male uh, counterpart of Asherah of the fertility god. It's like Baal's going to bring rain and controls the weather and causes things to come up from the ground. So if you're a good businessman, you're out there farming, you want to make sure that your crops grow. baals he's kind of like the relevant god. He's the one that's going to to bring the rain and, and really is going to help you with your business and things like that. And so if you start, things start going awry and, you know, you didn't really believe what your parents tried to teach you in temple anyway, and there's this Baal God that's going to help you with your business, hey, why not? The fourth thing is probably most appealing, and that is that <clears throat> Baal worship didn't have the sexual restrictions that Judaism had. Judaism required that you get married to one wife and you stay married and you stay sexually pure. And even if that relationship with your wife isn't going so well, you still stay committed to her till death. Well, that's not too appealing to a younger generation that's coming up, that's starting to reject the values of the parents, as we always see, right? Baal worship offered you the opportunity of sexual freedom. In fact, you could actually feel good about your sexual freedom because you could just go down to the local Baal temple, pick up a a Baal prostitute, have sex with a prostitute, and that would be your worship, your offering to Baal that day. Wow. So you don't have to feel restricted sexually. You can go out and actually worship Baal with sexual freedom. Sounds a little bit like today. Um you know the the religions that people are are in, inclined towards, um, and again I, I always go back to Hollywood because I think Hollywood has so much influence of our culture. How do they tend to portray, you know, kind of a Christian person or Christian family in a movie? It's like they're very sexually restrictive and and we're very tight and we're very uptight and worried about things, and and we don't seem to have the power of the Buddhist monk. We don't seem to have the power of of the Indian priest or the Native American priest. And um you know, I get what's another movie, uh what's that one where uh Tom Cruise goes off to Japan and then he becomes a a samurai and so he shows up and he's just kind of a dorky American, doesn't understand the sense of tradition and this, you know kind of the old Buddhist tradition and the samurai tradition and finally he kinda gets his act together. What we do in our, in, our, in our culture is we do this thing that Ravi Zacharias calls Westernism. Is we take Eastern ideas, baptize it with Christian thought, and then we kind of pretend like it's Eastern thought when in reality it's Westernism. It has nothing to do with what Buddhism is really about or what Native American religion is really about or what paganism is really about. We kind of baptize it, make it seem like it's a good thing. Like We think karma is a great thing, right? You know, karma's like, oh, you know, you're gonna die and then you'll be able to go into karma and be with your lover again, and you know, romance will be together forever and ever and ever in karma. No, real karma is this thing you're trying to escape. Karma is bad, right? But in what in westernism we make karma this good, wonderful thing that helps the nice romantic movies. All that to say that's that's the bail worship that we're talking about. Can you see how that would be appealing? especially to a younger generation that wants to reject the values of their parents. And so that's what we're coming into. When we come into chapter 18, go ahead and open up to 1 Kings 18. We're going to kind of, because there's a lot that we want to do this morning, I apologize, we're going to skip all of our review from last week. I'm just assuming that you guys all remember what we did last week and that you benefited from it and you loved it. And, and then we're going to trust that you guys uh, understood it. Okay, so he, so this week we're moving it, so we're talking about Elijah. next week we'll talk about elisha, and then we're gonna go back to chapter nine and hit uh Jonah so um so let's let me get us to our verses here after the all our memory device stuff. Do you guys remember this did we do this memory device stuff last week? Yeah. okay, so we're actually right here, the divided Kingdom number seven. So we're in the divided kingdom period. First, first King 17. We'll just kind of do a little overview. And then 18 is really where we want to be. You guys remember in chapter 17. We've got Elijah shows up on the scene <clears throat> and he just kind of does this little God calls him to go to Ahab. What does he tell Ahab? Rain. It's not going to be any rain until the Lord gives me the word to bring rain back. To b- b- bring rain back to the country. See you later. Boom. Then he hits the road. Right? And the Lord says, Hey, you go off. You're going to go hide in this Kishtron Valley, I think, and I'm going to prov- give you water. And by the way, I'm going to have the ravens bring you your food. That would be pretty nice. And so he's there hiding from Ahab. Why is he hiding from Ahab? Yeah. Ahab, remember Ahab and Jezebel, these are Baal worshipers. Elijah is just like his name says. This guy his name means Yahweh is God. He comes, he gives this prophecy, he hits the road, he's hiding from Ahab. And then so then there's just no rain. Why would the Lord hit rain as the way to kind of bring a curse upon Ahab and Israel? Yeah, it hits Baal right in the heart, right? Right in the head. Baal's supposed to be the one that's controlling the weather. He's the one that's bringing fertility. Rain brings fertility. He hits the rain god and right where it hurts. And so then, you know, it, Elijah has to go hide. We have him. Um, then the brook runs out. And so he says, hey, I want you to go meet up with this widow. And, um, and the widow's going to provide for you. The Lord miraculously is causing uh, the, what is it, the dough and and stuff in the jar and the oil to to multiply, almost like Jesus and the the loaves and fish. And then her son dies, and Elijah raises him from the dead. So Elijah is just this crazy prophet guy that God is using in pretty amazing ways. Um, And so that brings us to chapter 18. And so let's go ahead and let's start in verse one. And, we're, and then we'll, we'll make some comments on the way. And so let me just give you the big, the big overview is basically, you know, what is today is like Sunday, which should be the Lord's Day. But a lot of people think of it as NFL Day, right? So you got big teams going out there battling. So in this chapter, we basically have the battle of the gods. This is Yahweh versus Baal. Yahweh's going to play on Bale's home turf, and there's four hundred and fifty profits to one. And so it doesn't look good. I mean, the uh, Yahweh's um, ratings in the press, he he has a plummeting approval ratings in the press. And if they were to kind of try to figure out who they thought was gonna win this particular game, all of the experts would be saying Bale. Bale is gonna win. There's too much in Bale's favor for him not to win this battle of the gods. And so let's start in verse 1, and we'll kind of make some running comments as we run through. Verse 1 of 18. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Okay, so the third year, we're kind of left. Third year after what? The text really doesn't say but if you cross-reference this with Luke 4 and James 5.17, we know that this, is, this has been three years since Elijah pronounced no rain, right? And so three years, there's been no rain. <clears throat> this has been pretty tough on everybody. God says, I'm going to bring rain now. What's the problem with that, though? If God just suddenly causes it to start raining, what do you think Ahab and Jezebel and everybody up north is going to say? Yeah, they're going to say, Baal, he finally come through. All right. So everybody's just going to worship Baal and say, all right, he's been rejuvenated. Maybe he had to take off for a while. Maybe he was doing battle. We don't know where he was, but now he's finally back and he's rejuvenated. So God's going to set something up to make sure that people cannot give Baal credit for the return of the rain. So in verse 2, so Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. And this is just like Elijah. Now think about what God's telling him to do. Go to the guy that's trying to kill you. And I want you to give him a word. But Elijah, he just does what the Lord says. That's one of the things that's so cool about Elijah. God says, go do this. Go see this widow. He's just like, uh, okay. He's going go into this river and I'm going to send you ravens. And they're going to take care of you. He's like, uh, okay. And so he goes and then he presents himself to Ahab. And there was a severe famine in Samaria and so now we get some background. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Um, so Obadiah is kind of this administrator. I don't think this, this Obadiah doesn't have anything to do with the other Obadiah, the prophet, right? Is that true? I, was, I meant to look that up, but does anybody have any, any notes in your, in your Bible? I'm pretty sure that this is a different Obadiah. If anybody finds that, let me know. I ran out of time to look that one up. Um, But the parentheses here is, now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, uh, for so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden um, them 50 to a cave and had fed them with bread and water. So this guy is a believer in the administration of Jezebel and Ahab. So a totally different role here for Obadiah. Some commentators bag on Obadiah that he's this coward who's compromising and just kind of staying in there in the good graces of the king and queen. Um, but the text here seems to speak of Obadiah in a positive way. Um, that this is just another role that a believer, um, someone who loves the Lord, might have is... Kind of like Daniel was in the administration, right, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar or no, up there in Persia. Belshazzar, right? Is that right? Um, and so the Lord can use people in different ways. Obadiah is being used within the structure. Elijah's running around kind of like he's kind of like, you know, hitting Ahab face to face and then hitting the desert. Um, a lot of people think of Elijah as the bold one. And that's true. But in a lot of ways, Obadiah is there day to day having to deal with his necks on the line every single day. And here he is secretly helping the prophets of Yahweh, just like uh, people hiding Jews during World War II, And so he's he had done this in the past is the implication. Um, so verse five and Ahab had said to Obadiah, go into the land to all the springs of water and to all the brooks perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock so we're going to go out and um and try to find some food for our livestock so they divided the land between them to explore it ahab went one way by himself obadiah went another way by himself obadiah cares about saving lives of the prophets ahab cares about what his horses and mules. It's almost like save the whales, kill the babies. You know, <clears throat> the th- th- same thing that we have in our culture, right? We're just totally backwards, upside down. But that's Ahab's concern. It's the same one. Okay, so Ahab, Obadiah, this is the same Obadiah from later on uh, in the Minor Prophet. So we'll go take a look at that later. Um, in a future lesson, we'll hit Obadiah. So here's what happened. So now Obadiah was on his way and suddenly Elijah met him and he recognized him, fell on his face and said, is that you, my Lord, Elijah? This is the way a lot of times prophets seem to show up in the book of first Kings. They just kind of like suddenly there they are. And um, so Obadiah recognizes him. So he had probably maybe he was there in court when Elijah came and spoke the pronouncement three years ago. Perhaps he had seen some of these face-offs with um, Jezebel and Obadiah and Elijah in the past. We're not really sure, but he recognizes him. Then verse 8, and he answered and said, It is I. Go, tell your master Elijah is here. So you would think that this would be good news for Obadiah that Ahab's been looking for this guy. Um, You know, Elijah's my hero. I'll get these guys together. Maybe we'll get this thing all worked out. But notice Obadiah's response in verse 9. So he said, how have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah here. And it shall come to pass, as soon as I am gone away, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go to tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say... Go tell your master Elijah's here. He will kill me. This is kind of a befuddling turn of events. Um, Because what what is Obadiah's real fear? Is he afraid of Elijah and Ahab meeting up? Or what's his real fear here? Yeah. So he's afraid. He's going to... Leave Elijah here. Run over to Ahab. Say, "Hey, I found Elijah." They're going to run back, and Elijah is going to be disappear because the spirit of the Lord will have taken him away. So, what does this imply about kind of what's happened in the what happens in the past with Elijah or a prophet like him? Is this guy's prone to just kind of up and disappear? Like he here, he is. All of a sudden, he's the spirit has taken him away somewhere else. We don't really know what that means. We'll see a little bit of that later in the chapter. Um, but these prophet guys, they're kind of flighty, right? They're, you know, they show up, they disappear. where do they go? Are they up in the brook? Are they in the caves? We don't really know where they are. And so he's, I think Obadiah, for him to have this concern, to really think that his life would be at stake, there must be some background that Elijah's a guy that just doesn't stick around very long. And so Elijah has to kind of, Tell them, hey, no, don't worry, we're okay. So verse 15, then Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So he gives an oath. And as you guys know, uttering oaths at this time, that's you're gonna you're gonna keep it, otherwise your head is forfeit before the Lord. And so he gives this oath, so Obadiah feels good. Verse 16, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet. Elijah, so this would be the first time that these guys meet up face to face in about three years, right? So you can think of this old Western these guys walking towards each other, you know just kind of facing off staring at each other. This is would be a very interesting scene to uh to be a part of. Um, so then verse seventeen, then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him. Is that you, O Troubler of Israel? One of the best lines in the whole Bible. <clears throat> you could just imagine, you know, um, you know, Elijah's got on the back of his jersey, Troubler of Israel. You know, you know, the, anybody pay attention to Major League Baseball, how they've done this thing a couple weeks ago where they put the nicknames of everybody on the back of their jersey? Yeah, there's some pretty good ones. Like uh, I think Trout was just like, Kid! And, uh, Chris, you, any favorite ones you had? Of the, yeah. the machine, Maquina, La Maquina. Yeah, so that's some pretty cool, you know, uh, nicknames on the back of jerseys and stuff. So at least according to Ahab, if he were putting up suggestions for the nickname for Elijah, it'd be Troubler of Israel, which in, from Ahab's perspective would be true, right? But Elijah comes back and says, I have not... Um, troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, the four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal, and the four hundred prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So this is this is setting up for quite a face off. So bring the four hundred and fifty prophets or the, yeah, prof, uh, prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, that's kind of like the feminine counterpart, and um, that are eating at Jezebel's table. We're going to go to Mount Carmel. So he picks a spot that's not really pro-Yahweh. This is a place where Baal is already being worshipped, and uh, it's a pretty popular high place of Baal worship. So <clears throat> it's kind of like USC playing at Stanford or something. Um and so that's where they're going to face off. So, you know, basically, so Elijah is not, is, he doesn't really accept this nickname, Trouble of Israel. He wants he wants that to be on the back of Ahab's jersey. And uh, and really, historically, we'd say that's true. Ahab's really been the true troubler of Israel. Um, if we wanted to put something on the back of Elijah's jersey, we could call him Bringer of Rain. That's actually one of the baseball players. I forget which one he plays for the... Uh, up there in Toronto. What is it? Toronto Blue Jays. His his nickname is the bringer of rain. I thought that was one of the cool cool nicknames. Um all right, so we're set up now for this this face-off. So verse 20. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, "How long will you will you uh, falter? Between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. The fact that Elijah is saying this falter between two opinions, what does that seem to imply about his audience? So so just remember what we have here. We know that we've got um, Ahab, and we've got the 450 and the 400, but then you've also got this whole gathering of the crowd of Israel. And so Elijah's addressing Israel and he says, how long are you going to falter between two views? What's that imply? Do you think that the, the crowd that is gathered, um, are they exclusively worshiping Baal? Are they exclusivists? No. In fact, most pagan gods did not require exclusivity. Uh, Baal would not be offended at all if they worshipped Baal, and they also happened to worship Molech, and then they also happened to worship Yahweh. And so what's implied here is that the crowd that's gathered, these guys are probably worshipping Baal, many of them probably afraid of Jezebel and afraid for the life. And they're also worshiping Yahweh. They're trying to keep a little bit of Jesus in their life, a little bit of Yahweh, um, while they're also worshiping uh, Baal. And Elijah is representing Yahweh himself and saying, that's not going to happen. Yahweh will not allow other contending gods. If you want to follow Baal, follow him. And so he's calling them to put their beliefs into practice. He's basically saying, you cannot just have theology. You must have discipleship. You must follow. You must be a learner and follower of your God. So if you want to go follow Baal, become his disciple. If you want to follow Yahweh, become his disciple. Follow him. But this idea that we can have syncretism, the idea that we can do like what the Roman Catholics did, the missionaries, as they came into the Caribbean and just kind of baptize people and let them worship their false gods and just call them different saints. That's not going to happen. You've got to worship me exclusively, um, would be what the Lord would be saying here through Elijah. So what are we going to do? We're going to set up this test. Um, Verse 22, Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it's well-spoken. Let's, let's do this thing. It's on. Let's have this, this competition. Now, notice Elijah says that he's the only prophet. Obadiah had rescued at least 100, so that had obviously been in the past. So at some point, Jezebel would have found those prophets. Those guys are now dead and gone. So Elijah's the soul. He's the last of the Mohicans, right? And so he sets this thing up. And as we're going to see, Elijah isn't just kind of making up a test. This is something the Lord has directed him to do. So if you get this idea that you want to just go do some sort of challenge, you know, you're at your UCR and you're talking to your professor and you say, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, professor, whosoever God brings down fire into this classroom, let him be God. Unless the Lord has directly told you to do that, I wouldn't do it. But Elijah, who is this freaky prophet guy that's just disappearing places and ravens are feeding him. And he's laying on top of widow's sons and raising him from the dead and things like that. That's the kind of guy who God, if God instructs him to do it, he does it and the Lord's coming through. We're talking about a prophetic type of activity and we'll, we'll talk about that more here in a second. Uh, I guess let me give you a little preview. There are those of us who are Obadiahs, which I think is the vast majority of believers who have ever existed in the world. And then there are those who are Elijahs, which is a smaller group of people. And God is using both sets of people. But just because you're not being used in an Elijah-type way, don't feel like, oh, I'm only hiding a 100 prophets in caves. I'm only giving water and food to these prophets, hiding them from Jezebel. Who am I? No, whatever you're doing, wherever the Lord has positioned you can be used greatly of him and glorify him, even if it just seems rather hum-hum or ho-hum. So look at verse 25. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, um, Oh, we already read. No, no. Okay. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bowl for yourselves and prepare it first uh, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, and put no fire under it. So they took the bowl which they uh, uh, was given them, and they prepared it and called in the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. And there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped up about the altar which they had made. <clears throat> so you need to imagine, a lot of times when we read these stories, we've heard them since... A lot of you guys have probably heard this story since you were little in Sunday school. Raise your hand if you've heard this story since you were probably little. All right. So a lot of us hear this kind of stuff. And what we imagine is a bunch of white guys on a flannel board, right, wearing very colorful um, clothing. And we don't have any real concept of the pagan setting that this is. These people are not speaking English. They are speaking some form of Semitic language, some ancient form of Hebrew. Um, When they're praying to their God, imagine some Native American rain dance ceremony. These guys are dancing around, praying in a foreign language. They're burning incense. Imagine these movies that you've seen here recently with Native Americans or some Buddhists and all of the power and mystique of the Eastern or the Native American religion. That's what's going on here. And and their, and their multitude of incantation, uh, incantations and and so on and so forth. If this would be made by Hollywood, Hollywood m- would make this seem very profound and mystical. And you'd probably start seeing little spirit things moving. And Baal would show up and do exactly what these guys were asking him to do. Because that's just what Hollywood does. It always favors... The bad guys when it comes to this kind of thing. Um, So they begin to leap upon the altar. And so it was at noon. So we're talking three hours. They've been doing this. uh, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he's meditating or he is busy or he is on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. Why don't you try his cell phone? Try his beeper. Maybe he's off bowling. We don't really know. Um, One of the terms here when it says he's busy, the literal idea there is he's probably in the bathroom. He's off going to the restroom. Now, Elijah is mocking them. But as as we see, according to their reaction, they don't really see it as mocking because a god like Baal is not like a god like Yahweh. They had no concept. Baal was not omnipresent. Baal was not omniscient. It was very possible that Baal was in a completely different place at that time. Um, it was very possible that Baal was sleeping. In fact, in some of the Ugaritic tales that, where people are writing <clears throat> about Baal from their own perspective, there's a, a one tale of Baal's sister is, comes to find him. I don't know, somebody comes to, find, to ask for Baal, and she says, he's not here, he's hunting. And so this was in their own tales. that Baal Baal very well might not be there, and they might need to yell louder to get his attention. It kind of reminds me of what Bob Bell would tell us back in the day. I don't know how many of you remember Bob and Betty Bell. They're missionaries. Bob's passed away. Um, But they were missionaries to uh, Haiti. And the thing that's very interesting about the religion in Haiti, it's dominated by voodoo. But all the Haitians believe in God. In fact, They believe very much of the things that we believe about God, but they don't know and don't believe that God is omnipresent. And so the likelihood that God would have any interest in Haiti whatsoever is slim to none. He's probably in the United States or he's over in Israel or some important country, but God doesn't really care about Haiti. But the demons are in the millions. And so if we're going to get any help whatsoever with the demons, we need to go to the voodoo witch doctor because God's just probably not in Haiti at this time of year. And so the, that's similar to the idea here with Baal. Is, it's very possible that Baal's just not around. And so, um, so then we see... Um, where do we pick up here? So verse 28. So they cried aloud and cut themselves as was their custom with knives and lances. It's interesting how much how much pagan religion involves cutting, tattooing, bodily harm. It's not unusual until the blood gushed out of them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So here these these pagans have gone through this this whole ritual Trying to get Baal's attention and no-go. Baal is is nowhere to be found. And so how long has this uh, worship ceremony gone on now? Approximately? Yeah, at least. It could be that it went 9 to 3, but perhaps 9 to 6. This has gone on a big part of the day. Um, lots and lots of repetitious prayers and obviously dancing and incense and cutting and all that kind of stuff. Verse 30, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Now we get an interesting tidbit. This is the first time this has been revealed in this narrative. That there's actually a broken down altar of the Lord there. That, that Israel used to worship Yahweh way back in the day at some point, but that altar had been destroyed. And so now um, Elijah goes over, and this would have taken some time, and rebuilds this altar. So Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the, Lord, the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Why is it significant that he takes twelve stones, as opposed to say ten stones? One for each tribe. Yeah, one for each tribe. And this remember, this is during the time of the divided kingdom, so the, there's ten tribes in the north and or ten and a half and one and a half in the south, however you want to construct it. And so, um, the Lord through Yahweh is saying, "This is really my will." Is that you guys would be unified. I do not approve of this divided kingdom thing. Verses thirty-two. Then, when the stone with the stones, he built an altar in the name of Yahweh, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two sayas of seed. I didn't look that up, so I, I'm just imagining that's a lot of seed. Um, and he put the wood in in order, cut the bulls in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, "Fill for." four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. Then he, And they did it a second time. Do it a third time. They did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. Um, and he was and he also filled the trench with water. So we would assume that this is what the Lord had told him to do. Um, <clears throat> obviously water and fire don't mix real well. So if this thing works this is this is a big deal just to see fire from heaven's a big deal right see fire come down and licking up the water and then burning the altar would make it even bigger and it came to pass that time verse 36 of the offering of the evening sacrifice that elijah the prophet came and said and i want you to notice the length of his prayer here the content and the length so he said yahweh god Of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are Yahweh, God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again." If we're making a movie that's kind of from a Christian worldview, there is a bunch of swelling music. This is like Henry V pronouncing his "Hey, let's go fight the bad guys" speech. Um, you know, every war movie's got a, somebody who stands up and makes a big speech, right? And there is swelling music, and everybody goes, "Yeah, let's go do it!" Lord of the Rings, what have you? And so this is that type of moment. He's like, "Here is what the Lord's about ready to do." But here is so his prayer probably takes all of fifteen seconds. Um, their prayers were all day And so there's even something there being presented from the Lord It's like we don't have to jump and cut ourselves And run into a big frenzy In order to get the Lord's attention Yahweh is omnipresent He's all-powerful And He cares um, You know we can, <clears throat> we can look at what's going on here When you think how stupid of those Baal worshippers just be running into a frenzy, trying to get the attention of their God, felt like that they've got to just do all of these things, you know, to get his attention. But can't we also just be kind of be evangelical Baal worshipers, that we think that in order to get God's attention, in order to get God to really move, um, we've got to read the Bible three hours in the morning. You know if we miss our prayer time, then God's you know He's upset with us. If we don't show up every Sunday at Sunday school, God's not going to listen to us Now, I do hope you show up at Sunday school, but why are you showing up at Sunday school? Is it are we trying to are we, we feel like God's not going to listen to us if we're not at Sunday school, and if we ever miss a care group um if we're not going to one every week, if we're not doing this, if we're not witnessing every single day, if we're not going to path of life. If we're not going down to Mexico every time Pastor Mike goes to Mexico, if we don't go on a mission trip to the Philippines, um, if we're not teaching our kids a certain way, if we're not doing this and that, then the Lord's going to be disappointed and upset, and he's not going to hear us. You know, if you, if you just compound all of the different Christian activities, um, all good activities, but many times we can, if you just compound everything, just a cornerstone, that we say, hey, these things are available to you, and if you take it upon your heart that these things aren't just available, I need to do all of these things for God to be pleased with me. You could be busying yourself 20 hours a day with Christian activities and feeling like, well, now maybe maybe God will listen to me. Um, we need to be very careful about what are our motivations in coming before God. God is a God <clears throat> that wants to be our God, and we can cry out to him in five seconds, and he's there, Hearing us because of the finished work of Christ, and and many of us, um, our lives are not going to be Elijah lives. Many of us, our lives are just very normal. We're making breakfast in the morning for our kids. We're putting our kids to bed at night. We're going to work and we're earning money. We're trying to be a good testimony at work. We're opening up our mouth for the gospel. We're making good, trying to do the best we can to make good choices in life. When we fall, we're repenting of sin and asking people for forgiveness. Much of the Christian life is lived in the mundane as we're just trying to honor the Lord in, good, in, in, in His goodness and kindness. And, but do we feel like that we need to busy ourselves into a, a Baal-like frenzy in order to, for Him to want to hear us? If so, then we're not understanding the finished work of Christ and the full access that we have um, to the Lord. That we're not, We should not fall into the temptation of being modern-day Baal worshipers. And so I'll have to say that, so Elijah gives this 15-second prayer, very simple. He basically just acknowledges Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Israel. And he, he asks a few things. He says, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. God, may you let it be known that you are God. You are the only God. And that I'm your servant. And everything I've done here, I haven't just made up. I'm not like Jeroboam. I've just done what you told me to do. All this stuff and this, this sacrifice, this face-off, this is all from you. Hear me, O Yahweh, hear me, that this people may know that you are Yahweh and that you have turned their hearts back. And there we see this hope. I mean, just think about the darkness of this period in Israel's history. That basically the whole country, it feels like to Elijah, and we're going to see Later, he's even depressed over it. Even after this big hoopla and the victory of the Lord, he goes off into his victory party in chapter 19, and they're not breaking open champagne and spraying it on each other. He goes off and he's getting depressed, right? And he just wants to die. He says, "Lord, just let me die." He he feels like there's just no, nobody's following you, and yet here the Lord shows up, and he's he's turning, he's he's turning. the hearts of his people back to him. And we find out later in chapter uh, 19 that he's reserved a remnant. As dark as it feels, there are still those that are following Yahweh. And so there's great hope here. So let's see what happens. What's going to happen? Oh no, the tension is building. Who's going to win? Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell down and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust And it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And again, you just have to imagine if you're there, this isn't a flannel board activity. This is like fire falling from heaven, licking up the water, consuming the sacrifice. Um, I think all of us would be falling on our face. Um, and be shaking with fear as this activity had happened. Now, does this happen every day? Even in the pages of the Old Testament? No, it doesn't. <clears throat> but it has happened three times before. Um, let's see. Where's my little notes? Because I don't, I don't memorize this stuff very well. Well, you guys remember, like in Leviticus. Like Leviticus 9, um, the very first time that the priesthood has been established and the sacrificial system is established, they do the very first sacrifice. And what happens? Fire falls. Boom! Consumes the sacrifice. Basically, God's saying, I put my stamp of approval on the sacrificial system. Just crazy stuff, right? And then David goes to the place where the future temple is going to be built. He establishes an altar. The same thing. Fire comes down. Boom. Consumes the sacrifice. Then when the temple is finally built in Solomon and they set up that first sacrifice in the temple. Boom. Fire from heaven. So each time that the fire falls from heaven and and consumes the sacrifice. It was a kind of an initiation of a different stage of the sacrificial system. Which was meant to be a pointer to Christ. Right? Right? So you have the sacrifice that's offered by faith that we can, we're not saved by our own works. We're not Baal worshippers cutting ourselves and jumping up in a frenzy. <clears throat> no, we're saved by the provision of God through the sacrifice as a pointer to Christ. And, and so I, think, um, I don't think it's too far of a stretch here if we remember the other times that the, that the sacrifice has been consumed by fire to draw a connection to the sacrificial system and a connection to Christ that there's there's this that God is here putting his approval on the sacrificial system approved by Yahweh and an absolute rejection of Baal worship and and the paganism of this day. And so again we see this this great hope. And then verse 40. Verse 40 is the verse that a lot of the commentators wishes wasn't in the Bible. <clears throat> Up to this point everything's cool and All right, God won and Elijah's his prophet and the people are going to turn back to the Lord and they're all going to pull out their four spiritual laws and they're going to witness to the prophets of Baal. All the prophets of Baal are going to receive Jesus and then it's going to be a happy ending. Right. That's what a lot of the commentators want to see happen. What actually happens? Let's read verse 40. Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and executed them there. They're dead. Now, that's the way a good, you know, uh, Bronson movie would end, right? Or Clint Eastwood. That's not the way you expect the story of Elijah to end. We want to see all these guys hear a good Billy Graham message and walk down the aisle. And that's not the way God deals with this. Let me read you a quote of one commentator that's basically apologizing for Elijah. Let's see if I can read this. Yeah. So this guy is uh, this is a cool guy, Dale Davis, he's my homeboy. You guys should get every book that he's written. I'm not, and I'm not kidding. This this guy's awesome. <clears throat> but he quotes from this guy named uh Bimson who says this. Um He says, God's servants do not always respond as God planned, but he works with them in any case amidst the superstitions and hatreds of their times. So Elijah didn't do what God planned, but God still works with Elijah, even though he has superstitions and hatred towards this other people group. Is that, is that what the Bible wants us to walk away with from this story? I want to suggest to you that the problem is not with God. The problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with us. Is that we just have no idea how to properly view the judgment of God. And we don't think apostasy is all that bad of a a sin. We really don't think that idolatry and paganism is all that bad. I mean, look at like the... You guys can see how many movies I watch because I'm using all these movie illustrations. But, you know, the... uh, gladiator you guys ever seen gladiator and the main character russell Crowe, he's running around with these two little idols of his mom and dad and his or no his, his wife and his kid and the way the movie makes you feel about it it's almost like he's just pulling out pictures of his kid out of his wallet and yeah you know there's my children here's my wife and my kid and then you know he's praying to them again that's westernism that is completely not what idol worship was all about idol worship was a terrible terrible thing <clears throat> that put people in slavery and restricted it was filled with demon worship and stuff like that and um apostasy again think about it Jeroboam created a false religion that eventually leads to Baal worship that has people involved in temple prostitution rejection of um Yahweh entirely bondage to various forms of Baal um, each idol, the various idols that they had Were localized versions of Baal You know, you had Baal But then every region had its own localized version of Baal Almost like Roman Catholicism has their localized versions of the Virgin Mary You guys realize that? So you got the Virgin Mary But everybody's got their local Virgin Mary Like Guadalupe in Mexico That's the, that's the Virgin Mary for Mexico She appeared in Mexico as Guadalupe And everybody's got their own little localized Virgin Mary You've got your localized Baal, Baal uh, idols and stuff. And so all, you know, what Elijah is doing here. Remember, Elijah consistently just does what the Lord tells him to do, right? Lord says, do this. He does it. And so we get to the end of the story. He says, seize the prophets of Baal, these guys who have led us into this bondage. And we're going to execute them according to Deuteronomy 13. We don't have time to go back there, but just go back and read Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5. And during this time in Israel's history, this is a theocracy. This is not separation of church and state time. During this time of separation church and state, you and I aren't going to go around executing prophets of Islam. But if we all lived in a theocracy underneath Israel, where it was a violation of the Constitution and a violation of criminal law to be a false prophet and the execution or the, the penalty for that violation was death, as it says in Deuteronomy 13, then false prophets were to be killed as a protection mechanism for the whole people of Israel. Just look what happened to Israel and its history when they did not practice Deuteronomy 13. And so Elijah's taking them back. You know, when we look at these types of things, we've been so enamorized with our pluralistic ideas the idea that there's many different ways to God, that Christianity, maybe it's not so exclusive. Maybe these kind of Native American religions and Buddhists and Hindu, maybe everybody does have a little bit of the truth. And, and, and it's not so, apostasy isn't so bad. You know, when we, so when we look at these things, we kind of look at these things the way old Russian soldiers would look at a German toilet. Let me tell you what I mean by that. This is an illustration I picked up here recently. In in the spring of 1945, the Russians were coming in and taking Berlin. And many of the Russian soldiers were peasants. They came from parts of Russia where they had no idea what indoor plumbing was. They had never seen a toilet. And so they come into Berlin, which was a very advanced city, right? And they're going into these apartments and houses and seeing this white thing, and they started peeling their potatoes in it. They were washing their food in it. They were doing everything in the toilets other than what you were supposed to do in the toilets. And meanwhile, they were defecating all over the city and urinating all over the city. And some of the you know, the officers had to go around and try to train these peasant soldiers what a, toilet, a German toilet was for. And just like a a, a Russian peasant soldier had no idea what they were looking at when they looked at a German toilet, we look at verse 40 in this chapter from from our viewpoint, and we have no idea what to do with it. We want to say, oh, this is a moral problem in the Bible. But if we really were thinking correctly about there's been this battle going on since the beginning between God and the devil... And the devil is really the one that's behind all false religion and all idolatry, as the New Testament tells us. And that the devil is seeking to kill and destroy. God is not going around trying to fix the, the disease of idolatry with a breath mint. He is trying to deal with the disease of Baal worship with surgery. Getting rid of the prophets of Baal. And we need to think that way ourselves about sin, about the devil, about the world. Too often, we just think that the world is something to be trifled with. That the devil's really not all that bad. That apostasy and various religious viewpoints aren't really that big of a deal. Now, remember, we do not live in a theocracy and a church state system anymore. Since the rise of the church, Jesus told told Peter to put away your sword... Right? He lives by the sword, he'll die by the sword. And now we go out and we preach the gospel. And we're willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. We should not be those that are expecting the world's going to applaud and think, oh, we love you, Christians, that are trying to bring God back to the culture and trying to. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ makes us so happy. It's not going to happen. But we go out and we stand for Christ. We we worship the God of Elijah, the God of Yahweh, and we're willing to suffer uh, for His sake. Uh, tons to to learn from this chapter. We're pretty much over time, so we're going to have to bring it to a close. I'll be up here for questions. Uh, the last thing I would encourage you to do, though, is is maybe read another chapter forward if you can, just to get a feel for the um, I guess the human element of 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 followers of the Lord you'll notice that seems like a lot of the followers of the Lord have very unique I mean they're all over the place and they're different personalities Um, but there's so many of these guys in the Old Testament that are uh, prone towards what would you call it like depression and they're not like running around like happy clappy Jesus in my heart we're so happy all the time it's, uh, it's life is tough. I'm battling with Ahab and Jezebel and Baal worshipers. I'm tired, Lord. I want to die. That's what happens in the celebration ceremony after the Mount Carmel victory. And, um, and I think there's something we can learn from even that. Uh, that, <clears throat> that this life, this side of heaven, there's ups and downs emotionally. There's ups and downs. We know that God's going to win but we're plowing through some tough ground, uh, by the grace of the Lord until we get there. Right. A lot of joy, but it's not necessarily, it's not like something's gone wrong because, because we're having bouts of difficulty and depression and, and self doubt and so on. Does that make sense? So read that, that chapter 19 and see what you guys think. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the instruction of your word and, um, thank you for just a great uh, chapter help us to think your thoughts after you Uh, we our minds are being renewed uh, by your spirit as we study your word but we still have this thing called indwelling sin and 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 we have these old patterns of thinking that are left over from our our years of not knowing you and even Even now, Lord, sometimes the world and the devil and the flesh try to break in and influence the way that we think. Help us to believe your word. Help us to read it. And like Elijah was saying, help us to follow you. Um, Help us to really follow after you. And um, we thank you for the examples of even people like Obadiah that secretly and uh, just within his, his job, within a pagan culture, he's being used of you. And then we have people like Elijah that are going out and being used of you and obeying your word. Uh, Wherever you have placed each one of us, help us to step out and just be used of you and and, um, use the gifts you've given us um, to stand and, and to be a light. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.